Amen. Good to see you and good morning. Take your Bible to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Uh, This is toward the end of David's reign and he's uh, recounting some of the things that God has brought him through and that he's done. And I think with a, a hint of sadness, if we could sort of read between the lines, so to speak, he's talking about the fact that he's not going to build the house of God like he had wanted to. God told him that, you know, he was a man of war and God had other plans for building his house. Um, verse 3, if you're there in First Chronicles 28, it said, But God said unto me, Thou shalt not build an house for my name, because thou hast been a man of war and hast shed blood. Howbeit the Lord God of Israel chose me before all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he hath chosen Judah to be the ruler and of the house of Judah, the house of my father. And among the sons of my father, he liked me to make me king over all Israel. Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. And I'd like to ask the question this morning, does God like you? Does God like you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the opportunity to gather today. Uh, Lord, to sing praises unto your worthy name. Uh, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray that you'd meet with us for these next few moments, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts. Uh, Thank you for your goodness to us. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Does God like you? Kind of let the question hang there for just a moment, because it's probably not one that you hear very often or maybe haven't really even thought about. The word like is used a lot in the Bible, but very rarely like it's used here. For one thing, this is talking about God liking someone. But also, usually the word is just used to draw comparisons between things. This is like that. Not so much the way we would use it as in, I like you. But here, God is saying that. Uh, I remember uh, when I was, uh, I guess if you'd call it courting. I didn't even know what the word courting was back when I was uh, pursuing Melinda. But I had enough sense as a young Marine to realize that her dad, even though he was only in the Air Force... (laughs) still outranked me significantly, and so I went to ask his permission uh, if I could marry his daughter. And the question he asked me, which kind of threw me for a loop, is, do you like my daughter? Because if you could imagine, I was probably all set to have him ask me, do you love my daughter? That's the question that I was prepared for. But I think his question was a wise one, and it was, do you like my daughter. You know, parents have to love their kids. At least that's what we were told. (laughs) But you know, amidst all the demands that sometimes we put on them to sit up straight and finish your food and do all your homework and excel at sports and make sure you're popular and keep your hair done right and on and on, make sure you're involved in all these activities. Oh, and that you're doing right in church and all of which are good. But amidst sometimes the constant push to excel, you can see where a young person could be left to ask, I wonder if my parents really even like me. Most of them, at least if they're in a good home, they would probably quickly acknowledge that their parents love them. But do their parents like them? My teachers, coaches, employers. You know, we live in a world that in this 
crazy dichotomy that is constantly pressuring us to conform in almost every way while at the same time expressing ourselves, right? It's about an individual. You just need to be you or do you, right? As we hear that constant refrain nowadays. But at the same time, conform to all the categories that we expect you to fall into. It, It makes one wonder. I mean, does anyone really care about me? Just who I am as a person. Do my parents, do my coaches, do my fellow church members, ultimately, does God? Does he like anything about me just because I'm me? I was thinking about this. Is it really any wonder that people love to come home and be greeted by a dog? I mean, sometimes you have to wonder, right? I mean, the dog is like, we talk about these no judgment zones, but... Boy, when the dog greets you, it's like the first thing he does, he never says is, well, I heard you did this at work today. That never comes up. It's like no matter what you did, he's just as excited to see you. That's easy to see how a person could kind of get accustomed to that. People want to be liked for who they are. You're a person. See, love comes loaded down with duty oftentimes. I mean, love is beautiful. Don't, don't get us wrong. This is not a downplay of love whatsoever. But in our sort of everyday parlance, we talk about loving someone that, that has a whole truckload of responsibility that comes along with it, right? And we can love someone really without liking them. We're commanded to go love a lost world. Can you really, really say you like every person out there on the street that you meet? You probably don't like 10 people that you come across in a day in your own house, in your own workplace, or commanded to love them. Like, though, that often has sort of a more emotive delight behind it. I just like being around you. That's different than saying, well, I love you and I can tolerate you on most occasions. <laughs> Does God like you? We hear and use phrases like, well, he hides us behind the cross. And he no longer sees you, he just sees Jesus. Now, in our camp, we know what we mean when we use phrases like that. We understand the theological implications of being under the blood and behind the cross and so forth. But, boy, to a world that is just lost, it's got to make people wonder, is there anything about me that even remains? I mean, this world's gone crazy with transgenderism. They can't figure out. It's not that they just can't figure out. They're just completely unhappy with their own selves. And now the the big thing is self-harm. Flooding social media. People cutting themselves, mutilating their own bodies. Ramon mentioned it in our Sunday school this morning. It's like, they know they, know they need a transformation. They're, they're stuck with this wicked, sinful self. And, and it's like they're just going to cut themselves to pieces to try to get at the problem that only God can fix. And it's hurtful. God made you in his image as a unique being. And while we are loaded with sin and problems and we need his forgiveness and his grace and his transforming, regenerating power, that's all true. But you're still you. You're still you. We don't stop being us when we become Christians. And sometimes the gospel can be portrayed as sort of this wrathful father who is only tempered by the compassionate, loving son. That completely violates the oneness of the God that is represented in the Bible. 
There is one God and three distinct persons, but the Father and the Son are not ever at odds with each other. Jesus doesn't have to, uh, you know, just allow you to tag along and hopefully God will maybe put up with you. No, he saves us, but he saves us. It's God who loved the world, not just Jesus to follow our train of thought there. God is rich in his mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. First John 4, 8, you probably know it and memorized it. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now, there's a lot of things that we assign to God, but the God, Bible only tells us a few things that God is And love is one of those. I've heard things before like, well, God can't stand in the presence of sin. I'm like, I think you've got that backwards. That's good. (laughs) Pretty sure it's sin that can't stand in the presence of God. See, little things like that trick our minds into thinking like, well, my sinfulness is pushing God away. No, No one's pushing God anywhere. Amen. It's your sin that keeps you from being able to stand in his presence. Go over to Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll have to hurry a bit here for sake of time this morning. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin with dust so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen and amen. Amen. And I've gone through several people's uh, explanations and commentaries of this passage, and they almost all jump over the next little phrase. Verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him. We focus on the fact that he endured the cross because that's what it's talking about. That's the next phrase there. And that he despised the shame. The Bible says he did it with joy. The joy that was set before him. Now, that's more than just, well, we were worthy, so he paid the price for us. No, that's not what it's talking about. But it is talking about our redemption. His joy at redeeming his fallen creatures. God loves individuals, not just an amorphous mass of humanity. Jesus said to the porter, he openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and have known, am known of mine. God is not indifferent to sin. He does not turn a blind eye to bad behavior. But it is because those things pervert his original intent for his good creation that he doesn't like them. We sometimes think that hatred and self-loathing are some sort of a replacement for repentance and humility, and they're not. They're not. Repentance and humility are what God wants. Reminds me of a story. God, he loves you as an individual. He cares about you. And I thought about the fact that the Bible says that he has every hair on your head numbered, doesn't it? That's, that's pretty much a specific care for you. You know, and over in in Luke, I think it's chapter four, there's a story about a woman who washes Jesus' feet, right? And and the Bible says that she watered his feet with her tears. 
And then she dried them with the hairs of her head. The Bible says that a, a woman's hair is her glory. And she laid her hair, her glory, at the feet of Jesus Christ. And as she's wiping away those tears with her own hair, Jesus is aware of every single one of them. He's got them all numbered. I know which numbers those are that are wiping my feet right now. God loves individuals. We are crucified with him. Go to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. We don't merely talk about Jesus as a great teacher or a sage or some sort of social leader. He is very God, but he became one of us. The word of God took on flesh and dwelt among us, John 1 tells us. And Hebrews 4 tells us that we don't have a high priest that can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. That's a God who cares, who enters into this life that we have. He cares about us. We're crucified with him. The Bible says that calls us in Christ. Romans chapter 16, it's mentioned multiple times. Ephesians 1, Philippians 1, to all the saints in Jesus Christ. We get in him. This is new life. And not only are we in him, but he is in us. Romans 8, 10. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And the Bible says he lives in us. That's our righteousness. Why do we have this standing before God? Because Jesus Christ, the righteous, now indwells us. We're in him. He's in us. We're members of his body. Romans 12, 4 and 5 says. And that our bodies are not our own. Members of his body, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 30, we're members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We're his bride. Paul says, I've espoused you to one husband. You don't think a husband cares about his bride? Specifically, he's like, well, as long as I got me a woman. That's not how a husband thinks. He has someone specific in mind. In marriage, a man and a woman don't cease to be two people although they do become one new thing. We're united to each other. 1 John three sixteen. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's the care of a family. Boy, there's so much need for a family out there in the world. Homes without fathers, children without care, without guidance. And taking that picture into their relationship of what a heavenly father must be like, it's no wonder most people don't want anything to do with it. We're clothed in Christ. Romans 13, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. He is the vine and we are the branches. He's the source from which we draw all of our life, all of our nourishment. We're nothing without him but it doesn't mean we're nothing. We have new life. We're born again. I mean, how much more of a dramatic change do you want? You're born again and you can't be unborn again. Jesus said, marvel not that I say unto you, ye must be born again, born of the incorruptible seed of the word of God. We have a new family. Hebrews 2, Jesus said that he's not ashamed to call them his brethren. 
That's an incredible statement considering who's making it. Jay just sang that song a moment ago, Emmanuel. We think of all the glorious things that await us in heaven. I can't wait to see family. We have family in heaven that we've never even met yet. You know that? Brothers and sisters in Christ that I've never even met. Now, I have some earthly family members I expect to meet as well. My dad, my grandfather. But like the verse in that song says, one joy shall all joys excel to see thy face, Emmanuel. That ex- I'm excited about a lot of things, but nothing compares. Nothing compares to the fact that we're going to see him face to face one day. Paul expresses the dichotomy of this life very succinctly in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. It's a verse that many of you probably have memorized. He says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As powerful as that is, theologically, it's filled with first-person singular pronouns. I, I, I. It's not because Paul's being selfish, but he's saying as incredible as it is what God has done for me and to me and through me, there's still I involved. It's not because he's working out his, or working for his salvation. It's because God saved him, him as a person. Christianity alone is really what allows the true individual to come out. People think of Christians as a bunch of conformists. Well, insofar as we're trying to conform to the image of Jesus Christ, maybe. But Christians are really the only people that are free to actually be themselves. And if you doubt that, go look at this world and what these people are doing to themselves in the name of individuality. The the nonconformists keep getting harder and harder to tell apart. Just like a telescope shows us that a nebula is actually made up of individual stars, God loves the world, but he loves you as an individual as well. So go back as we close to 1 Chronicles 28. Say, so in answer to the question, does God really like you? Well, first of all, the Bible says he's angry with the wicked every day. And if you won't come to him through his son, then it's safe to say he's not happy with you. That's the only way anyone gets saved is through Jesus Christ, through repentance, humility, through faith and what God provided through his son. Acknowledgement that you cannot do what God did for you and that you need him. Now, again, like, well, Bible doesn't use that word a lot, but trying to hang the thought out there beyond God loving you, does he like you? And I think first Chronicles 28 gives us a little bit of insight in this regard that our salvation is predicated, of course, on the work of his son on our behalf. But the Bible does see, say things such as Abraham was the friend of God, doesn't it? Tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. And here in 1 Chronicles 28, you look at the text, we see several times that God chose men. He chose David in verse 4. He chose Solomon in verse 5, and then David recounts it again in verse 6 and verse 10. Very clearly, 
that God chose these men. But we also see some conditions. Verse 7. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom. This is God talking about Solomon forever. If he be constant to do my commandments and my judgments as at this day. Verse 9. And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. God chose them and he had a plan for them. But he lists at least four specific conditions under which he would be pleased to bless their choices in their life. The Bible says that Jesus is the friend of sinners. I think we can safely say he wants to be your friend. And he said, ye are my friends in John 15, if you do whatsoever I command you. You know, again, drawing on that illustration of a parent, we love our children regardless, right? But sometimes they don't make us too happy, perhaps. Say, I don't like you right now. (laughs) And of course, God is not fickle in any way. But he does lay out some conditions for his blessings upon his people. He wants them to seek him. And he says, if you seek me, I will be found. It's not some game of cosmic hide and seek. God will be found and he's found in his word. He says, you stick to those commandments. You search for me with all your heart and I will be found of you and I will bless you. Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory And no good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly. Does God like you? Well, he loves you in Jesus Christ. I think how much he likes what you're doing is at least in large part up to you. So as we bow our heads and pastor comes to close the service, the first thing you have to ask today is, do you know him as your savior? Are you in Christ through faith in him? And then believer, is is God pleased? with your life? Does he like how you're living it? If not, maybe you can draw closer to him through his word. Pastor.